Now, on this Invest Talk podcast, Justin Klein listens to your questions and provides unbiased answers. Chart is definitely in a downtrend, and it's uh, it's definitely not cheap enough yet. Invest Talk. Your participation makes it unique. 888-99-CHART. This is Invest Talk. Independent thinking, shared success. Justin Klein and Steve Peasley stand ready to take your finance and investment questions and share their unbiased answers. Invest Talk is made possible by KPP Financial, a registered investment advisor firm serving clients throughout the United States. The clarity for your path forward starts now. Here is KPP Chief Executive Officer, Financial Advisor, Justin Klein. Good afternoon, fellow investors, and welcome back to Invest Talk. This is our Monday, August 1st, 2022 edition. And as investors, we pay very close attention to the market and naturally even closer attention to certain sectors. And the one that's top of mind for most people right now is the oil sector and the cost of oil and its consumption levels is one area that a lot of traders are looking at. And here's a little perspective. Now, this is according to YCharts, one of the uh, data platforms that we use. But this is put out by BP, British Petroleum. World oil consumption is at the current level of about 94 million barrels per day. Now, that's up from 88.75 million barrels in 2020, just a couple of years ago. And that's an increase of 6% since then. Now, for perspective, in 1972... The last time we had the, an oil crisis, world consumption was only 51 million. And that just shows you the applications for, uh, for, for the use of oil have expanded and the number of people that are using oil, especially in developing countries, have skyrocketed as well. Even though we've had a, a lot of advances in efficiency of uh, internal combustion engine cars and things like that, still... Oil is used in in everything, not just in cars, but uh, a lot of manufactured goods, right? Petrochemicals, etc. So, in 2021, petroleum consumption here in the U.S. averaged about 20 million barrels per day, and that's about a million barrels of biofuel as well. And so, you have to ask yourself in the U.S. what are the petroleum products people consume most? Number one, gasoline, as you would probably expect. That's about 8.8 million of the 20 and kerosene jet fuel that's the fourth most used petroleum product here in the u.s about 1.4 million barrels per day used just for that seven percent of total consumption so what this shows you is that 2021 has had a higher consumption because of the economy is rebounding from covid and even though we're switching from to a lot of electric evs uh it just doesn't happen quickly and it takes a lot of time And so understanding these longer term trends and not just buying into the narrative uh, and understanding that our energy use is slow to move. It takes a long time Um, and and things evolve from year to year. And this is uh, despite the, the push to electric vehicles, our demand continues to go up. So 
Just wanted to give you some perspective there. Now, I'm Justin Klein, and I look forward to this hour with you on this podcast and hearing your finance and investment questions and give you my straight and unbiased answers. No hidden agenda, just here to give you the facts. And the fact is we are in a new month, and we need to look back in July. And what you'll see is the market had a very good month. And this is a good lesson for you. Think of all of the recession talk over the past month, and are we in a recession? And it turns out, technically, we were in a recession uh, in the first half. July was not one of part of that, right? That was the first month of this of the third quarter. But what you can see is that when there's maximum pessimism, that's usually a pretty good, at least near term, indication to buy and. There's that age old adage that when things go on sale in the stock market, people get nervous and scared as opposed to when things go on sale at the store, they get excited. And it's kind of this weird dichotomy uh, that, you know, people use their uh, emotions and unfortunately, they take their eye off the ball and don't focus on the facts and keeping that plan and sticking to your plan uh, even though the market is going to be volatile, this is natural. This is part of the investing endeavor that we are all going through. You're going to have good stretches, good months, good weeks, bad weeks, bad quarters, etc. And obviously the first half was that, but the start of the third quarter was the opposite. And that often is the case when you get extreme pessimism, which we've been talking about for a little while now. But that's in the past. That's July. What does August have in store and the rest of the year? So that's what I'm here to help you with is to help you navigate these inflationary times, but with big moves, you know, for 30 years, we were in a period where inflation didn't really move a whole lot. Occasionally went up to 4% or so, but very rarely it was kind of in that one to two and a half percent range for a long period of time. Now we're kind of in this gyrating range, and you've seen with uh, at the ISM data today, you had a big drop in prices for manufacturing goods, which is uh, a leading indicator for what CPI is going to do. So that was a big data point today that I think everybody needs to pay attention to. So I invite your calls and questions right now to our anytime line at 888 chart whether you're listening live, 4 to 5 Pacific time, or you're listening after hours. Either way, that number never changes. So let's get right to our first listener question now. Hi, can I have your opinion on buying this stock for a long-term investment, FPI? Thank you so much. All right, I think, let's double check here. I'm not sure if it was FPI or SPI. I think I heard FPI, and my engineer is saying FPI as well. So. No, no, it's fine. I think we're going to go with FPI. Uh, just for future, everyone out there, try to say the name of the company as well. That's always a good way to confirm that. But Farmland Partners is FPI, and this is a REIT, and they hold high-quality farmland, 160,000 acres in 16 states. Yields about 1.6%. And the good thing about this is there's not a lot of great ways to have exposure to farmland and the value of farmland. And as we are in a more regionalized world, less globalization, uh, less trade with countries like Ukraine, who is a huge exporter of, of wheat and, and other 
types of types of grains. The value of our fam- farmland is going to be a nice inflation hedge, and and certainly going to garner higher prices, higher rents, etc. And uh, FPI is uh, certainly going to benefit from that. So, uh, very small company, still about seven hundred million dollar market cap, and yields one point six percent, which is pretty low for a REIT. But the technicals look look absolutely fine. So, if I'm going to give, if you want exposure to farmland. This is not a bad way to do it, to get a nice uh, dividend, uh, et cetera, and diversify your portfolio a little bit and do it liquid because buying farmland, uh, purchasing and selling it directly would be quite expensive. And this is a quick, easy way to gain exposure. Now we're heading into a break and I welcome your finance and investment questions right now. No question is too simple or too complex. And if you don't have the answer, I will, or I don't have the answer, I will admit it. But chances are I'll be able to tackle your question and give you some perspective in order to make a better decision. So give me a call. This is Invest Talk at 888 chart Why do listener questions make Invest Talk better? Which of these would you recommend? Because each caller presents fresh questions in their voice. I was curious if you still think aluminum has a ways to go from here. When do I know the right time to take profits? Should I be looking for an exit? Should I be holding here? And listeners instinctively realize that Invest Talk uniquely offers a welcome dose of investing satisfaction. I think you have a terrific show and I've learned a whole lot. Hey guys, love your show. Uh, I've been listening for several years now and I've learned a lot. Justin Klein and Steve Peasley understand what investors need and want. I would look at it from a tax perspective. If there's no tax implications, move on, find better ways to use that money. I'm going with the odds. I think a half position now would at least get you in it and get you watching it so you won't lose track of it. Don't forget to call Investor. 888-99-CHART. One of the most rewarding things I do each weekday is host the Invest Talk podcast. I truly enjoy helping investors, and I know that every question counts and every answer I provide will be unbiased. You, the caller, get to chart the course for each Invest Talk podcast. Call with your questions anytime, day or night, 888-99-CHART. Now, my focus point today is based on this question. Earnings season has begun, but is it too late to celebrate? We're going to look at the data here and what most of the S&P has said and most of the S&P has reported, uh, especially if you look at it based on a an earnings basis, you know, uh, earnings weighted. When the, the large companies report, obviously, that's a bigger has a bigger impact on the market versus those those smaller names in general. And so uh, most of those have reported and we're going to unpack the numbers for you. Also, have investors capitulated yet on tech stocks? We're going to look at some of the recent flows and give you that answer. Also, the European energy crisis has shifted the narrative when it comes to the green transition. And we're going to look at how that has changed policy around the world. And then lastly, apartment rents. They're beginning to taper off after we've had pretty high growth in that space. That's also been pushing up inflationary figures. Because remember, the 
Inflation, the CPI, does not include housing prices. It's called owner's equivalent rent, which is basically a survey of what own what owners of homes think they can rent their house for, which is, I don't know how really precise that is or how great that is, um, but clearly it's more about what rents are doing versus the actually actual underlying home price. And uh, I want to look at those trends because not only does that hit people's pocketbooks, but also hits the CPI headline figure as well. So we're going to look at those data points today, but ultimately I want to know what is on your mind. That's most important for me. I can talk about whatever I want in on today's show, but that's not nearly as important as what you want to talk about. So I encourage you to give me a call at 888-99-CHART. And let's take a look at the market today. We had the S&P down about 11 points Kind of a pause day right around the 100-day moving average, which, granted, was pretty good resistance back in the March time frame. Now, that was coming off sentiment that was not nearly as bearish as it was uh, in the month of July, early month of July, late, late June. And so I think there still could be some upside uh, in the market. But we are starting to finally enter that resistance zone. Uh, right around the 4100 was what I was thinking 41 and 4200. That's kind of the first zone where the market is going to meet some sellers. That's where the market broke down from before, right in that area in late mid to late June. Uh, and oftentimes when you return there, there's a lot of people that were buying and they're back to even and they want to get out. And so that typically is what drives the short term hesitation in the market. Uh, there's still plenty of money uh, flowing out there. The Fed is clearly pivoted to some degree. Now, how aggressive will, the pivot, will, their, will their pivot be? We shall see. The market is still pricing in a 50 basis point uh, rate hike uh, in September. So we have the whole month of August, no Fed days, we just had one, remember it's every six weeks, and right now there's about a 75% chance of that 50 basis point hike, which would be a slowdown from the last two meetings, which are 75 basis points each, and got basically got the Fed around where neutral is when it comes to policy, uh, at the levels that aren't stimulating the economy, as well as not holding the economy back, at least according to their calculations. And then we have an expectation of another 25 basis point hike in the month of November. And then the final one is kind of 50-50, whether they're actually going to raise again in December. So that's kind of what we're, we're seeing in Fed expectations for the rest of the year. There's only three more Fed meetings for the rest of the year, which is interesting. And uh, basically saying, hey, the, Fed, the Fed's almost done. Two, maybe three more meetings of hikes, and then they're going to pause. And you had some economic data uh, come out today that kind of confirmed that. It was the ISM Manufacturing Index, the PMI. So the PMI, that had the, what, fifth, sixth month in a row of deceleration down to 52.8. Still growing. Anything above 50 is growth on the PMIs. But what's most important was the prices paid index had the largest drop, I think, in like 12 years or something, basically since the financial crisis. And it went from 87.1 in March to 84.6 in April, and then 82.2 in May, 
78.5 in June. So that was three months in a row where prices were already decelerating, went all the way down to 60 in the month of July. So really sharp deceleration in prices there. And that was the main thing that I think the market took away that, hey, this is a good leading indicator to where the CPI is going is what are the prices that are coming out of the factories. And those prices are decelerating at a rapid pace and is actually down 30%. That figure is down 30% year over year now. Now, time seems to be moving fast today. So we are heading into a break and I'm ready for your questions. Whatever is on your mind, money and finance related, I can probably help you get some perspective, get some data for you to make better decisions. So I encourage your calls right now at 888-99-CHART. Each day, InvestTalk listeners submit their finance and investment questions via phone or email. Would you like your question to be put near the top of the list? Just take a minute or two to leave a review and rating for InvestTalk at iTunes. And be sure to include a brief question with your iTunes review comments. Hi, Stephen, Justin. This is Kevin calling from La Crescenta, California. Thanks again for all the knowledge and information you guys always share. I had a question regarding the dollar and commodity plays. If the U.S. dollar starts to weaken, I'm wondering which... uh, types of commodity plays might benefit the most? Would it be U.S. commodities that sell mostly to U.S., or would it be the U.S.-based commodity companies that trade internationally or send their commodities internationally, or would it be the international commodities, the companies that are based in other countries like Canada or Brazil or, or Europe? Just wondering how that all plays together in terms of how it affects their incomes and profits. Look forward to hearing your answer on the show. Thank you. It's a good question and certainly a complicated one. Now, a lower dollar does tend to lift commodity prices in general, but that's typically only one side of the ledger. Stronger dollar uh, makes it easier for us in the U.S. to buy commodities, right? It's cheaper because our dollar is stronger. Uh, but for the rest of the world, those become more expensive, especially if they have to translate them into dollars, like in the oil market, for example. Um, but what you're speaking about in, in general has more to do with where the exposure to, uh, their, their, their cash flows, their, their, their customers is whether they're getting paid in dollars or they're getting paid, especially in thinking about other commodities besides oil, uh, in some sort of local currency. And when the US dollar is weaker, and those other commodities or other countries currencies are stronger, well, that's a good thing, right? Because when you translate that back into dollars, then earnings are, are higher. So what you're speaking about more is currency risk of the particular company companies that you're speaking about, uh, what their mix of exposures, uh, currency exposures are. Uh, I always use a simple example. Now, this is not the commodity space, but a simple example is Philip Morris and Altria. Altria's entire cigarette business is here in the US. It's domestic. And obviously that's shrinking over time because less and less people are smoking here in the US. But they don't have the currency risk because 
all their customers are are purchasing in dollars. They have regulatory risk, and you've seen that recently with uh, with that. But you don't really have uh, the, cons- the 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 currency risk. Whereas Phil Morris, their entire business is foreign. So if the dollar gets weaker, that is typically good for Philip Morris and their business because now their you know the, the, their currency flows in the Thai baht and the Korean won and you know all the other currencies throughout the world suddenly are higher when they when they translate those back into dollars. So that's a, a simple way clear-cut way to to look at the currency risk there. Uh but certainly every commodity country c- company uh has d- diverse uh a diverse set of currency risks that you have to explore and understand. Um but in general the the more multinational they are, the more that their uh, their business is worldwide. A weaker dollar tends to be better for their business. Whereas, if it's more domestic focused, maybe it's a shale company that only uh, produces here and sells into the U.S. Then a stronger dollar is typically better for them. Hope that helps. Now, my focus point today is based on this question: Earnings season has begun, but is it too early to celebrate? And this is. A report from Bank of America, and it looked at the second quarter quarter earnings expectations, and they weren't really that high to start with. Uh, but on average, the the these the two hundred seventy nine companies that have reported through Monday's close beat by three percent, three percent. Now, those two hundred seventy nine companies, while that's a, a slight majority of the total S and P five hundred. In total, they comprise 71% of the total index's earnings. So it's a pretty good representation because those larger names have have reported already. Now, they noted that only 60% of consumer discretionary companies have reported so far this this second quarter. And that's the one that's been under the most pressure this earnings season. And so that could change the dynamic of how many, what percentage of the companies are actually beating. Now, bear markets typically bottom after earnings per share estimates have been cut, cut sharply, meaning they kind of kitchen sink the the earnings report. That's that's a that's a term that's been around for a long time. When things are really bad, what a lot of CEOs and, and ex- executives try to do is they throw in all of the write downs, all the bad news, and they throw it into one quarter because. It's easier to just kind of get that out of the way and focus on the future and not have these these things, uh, potential uh, disappointments, future disappointments hang over their head. And so we haven't really seen that so far because S&P 500 companies have revised down their second half earnings per share by only 2% since the beginning of July. And they believe a mild recession is now all but inevitable next year. And I kind of agree with that. Uh, and they're looking at uh, different things. One is a corporate sentiment, which is at similar levels to the great financial crisis. They uh, talk about weak demand being mentioned in corporate earnings calls. That's not far off uh, GFC levels and layoff announcements are jumping dramatically in recent weeks as well. So there are indications that uh, the consumer is stressed and, and and all that, but remember, it's a mild recession, and overall earnings hasn't really gone down that much. It's basically flat year over year. Which, considering how difficult the comp was for the second quarter of last year, I think that's a success so far. Now we're heading into a break, so give me a call at eight 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 ninety nine chart. eBay Motors is here for the ride. 
Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It is official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly, so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs. eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. At this point, I think almost everyone has heard how generative AI promises to bring us to the next industrial revolution. AI is already shaping society with an impact on daily life that echoes the transformative significance of electricity or the internet. As we take steps to embrace the potential of generative AI, we need to remain vigilant with regard to its exploitability. This is where HackerOne comes in. HackerOne's AI Red Team addresses the novel challenges of AI safety and security for businesses that are launching new AI deployments. The HackerOne approach involves targeted offensive testing by harnessing the collective skills of ethical hackers who are proficient in AI and prompt hacking. In short, AI red teaming is the practice of stress testing AI models and deployments to make sure they can't be tricked into providing information beyond their intended use, and that security flaws can't be exploited to access confidential data or systems. HackerOne seamlessly integrates with your existing tools to enhance communication and collaboration across development, security, and IT teams. So, Stay ahead of the game in the battle against cyber threats with HackerOne's Attack Resistance Platform. Learn more at HackerOne.com. That's H-A-C-K-E-R-O-N-E.com. HackerOne.com. The stock market is volatile. It's constantly changing. So how are you positioned? Is your portfolio properly balanced? Or are you taking unnecessary risks? You can get guidance anytime for free if you go to investtalk.com and take the brief Riskalyze quiz. Steve, Justin, Art from Tucson. I own Intel. Should I sell it? Should I hold it? Should I buy some more? I'm willing to hold it for the long term. Just wondering what you guys think about where it's going to go, say, over the next year or two. All right, I'll listen on the podcast. Thanks a lot for everything you do. All right, this is Intel Corporation. I think everyone knows what Intel does. And here's the issue with Intel. Uh, they have they had a CEO, and that changed recently. They had a CEO that used to be the former CFO. And history says that in the technology space, that is a bad idea. Why? Because the technology space requires constant R&D, constant innovation. And if you don't invest in those things, 
then you are likely to be passed by a competitor. And that's kind of what you've seen in this space. AMD has maybe not passed them, but at least on par with kind of uh, what they, they do with their processors. And that's that's hurt their business dramatically. They made $5.50 last year, but only sales to make $2.43 this year. Earnings are down 22%. Excuse me, revenue is down 22% year over year. Earnings down 79% year over year in the second quarter. So there's a couple of potential catalysts that could turn Intel around. One is the appointment recently of a new CEO that used to be the CTO, this chief technology officer that is a little more in tune with what's happening on the technology side and maybe getting them able to be up to speed with the uh, future production manufacturing uh, techniques that they've struggled with as of late. And so that would be the first bet that their CTO can fix the problems that the CFO uh, created over his years of, of, of lack of innovation and lack of uh, lack of investment. So that's number one. Number two would be the chip bill that's going through Congress right now uh, in regards to investment in infrastructure, investment in chip foundries here in the U.S. Uh, to ameliorate supply chain issues that were highlighted with COVID crisis and all the shutdowns and what's going on with Taiwan and Taiwan Semiconductor. Obviously, we have geopolitical concerns there. Uh, and so that's going to benefit a lot of players within the space and Intel, certainly one of them, because their manufacturing base is here in the U.S. And that's going to help them modernize, expand, uh, get into different probably areas that, that maybe they're not uh, big in right now uh, in the chip space. So I think there's there's some catalysts there that could propel it higher. But those things have to line up well, uh, especially in the technology side. If they continue to lag in their production capabilities, in their technology advancements, then they're going to continue to have margin, margin uh, decline and market share decline uh, to AMD and, and other competitors. And so, uh, you know, it had pretty bad earnings and it didn't break to new lows. So technically, that's kind of a positive if you're thinking of a sentiment perspective. And it is very cheap. Uh, if they make $2.83 next year, it's trading at a, you know, mid-teen PE, which frankly, is still a little bit expensive for something that that's struggling and shrinking, right? Uh, their business. So, you know, I'm kind of on the fence on it. I think it's kind of a hold. I don't wouldn't buy more. Um, but I would need to see some advancements on the technology side, and amelioration of their uh, market share decline for me to get excited about adding more money to Intel right now. Thanks for the call. 888 chart 889924278. Let's pivot into tech stocks. And despite the fact that the NASDAQ is down 21% so far this year and uh, still down 30% from its highs, uh, technology bets on technology stocks continue to go up. And many individual investors are starting to double down now that you've seen big declines. And some of the most popular stocks among individual investors are these tech names. In late July, purchases of individual investors, a basket of popular tech stocks hit the highest level since 2014. So these declines are not scaring off people. 
they're still betting on names like Tesla and AMD and uh, Amazon, Apple, Meta platforms, Google, Microsoft, etc. And they're even increasing risky bets on leveraged funds tied to the NASDAQ and other tech-related ETFs. And it's a sign that investors are still in play for these wild swings in shares. And they're still tied to the narratives. And they think that the stock, the, these stocks have declined and, oh, they're so big or so great. They're still part of our lives. They're always going to be here. And look at Intel. Intel's a good example. We just talked about that. Uh, they, they can be out innovated. They can, things can change rapidly. Um, and unless they have proved out a business model, these are likely to be companies that just continue to grind lower as inflation stays relatively elevated and, and, and interest rates tend to go up. Um, so despite the fact that NASDAQ did outperform last month, that tip, that's typical of a risk on month, NASDAQ was up 12% in July, the S&P was up 91 So you're going to get these counter trend rallies. And that shouldn't shock you, especially with the 10 year. Uh, dropping pretty decently. And in fact, I would argue that the 10 year went from three and a half to close the month right around 2.6. So nearly a whole uh, 1% drop in the 10 year. And the NASDAQ only outperformed by 3% in the month. That should be a giant tailwind. And it was just a decent bounce. Okay. And it just shows you that the relative strength still isn't really there. And even though we had a slew of earnings from Apple, Amazon, Alphabet, etc., cetera, uh, Apple logged its best month since August, 2020, Amazon October best month since October, 2009. And a lot of investors pounced on names that even had bad earnings, you know, Amazon, Apple, at least they had pretty good earnings, but companies like Meta or Facebook call it, that was the top buy among individual investors on the Fidelity Brokers platform last Thursday when it fell 5.2% on terrible earnings. So they're not paying attention to the fundamentals. They're just buying the names. And leveraged ETF tracking tech has been the third and fourth most popular ETF for individual investors to buy this year. Isn't that crazy? So sentiment is far from washed out. And that's really what you should be looking for to buy these names, to get excited about the growth side of the market again, is everybody throwing the baby out with the bathwater and resetting valuations on many of these names and giving up on them. Uh, and typically go back to 2000, which I say this is very similar to the 2000, 2003 timeframe where it took three full years for a continuous grind lower and you had pretty good rallies. 15, 20, 25% from different lows in the NASDAQ over those three-year periods. And they were just simply counter-trend bear market rallies. And they can be nice to grab if you can uh, if you can capitalize on them. But valuations eventually corrected and corrected big time. And in, in vast majority of them, down 80, 90%. Uh, ultimately, the NASDAQ itself, the entire index was down 70% peak to trough. And so I think you're going to get something similar to that once this bear market in tech finally ends. Now, Steve and I have said many times that we appreciate our diverse Invest Talk audience. And in fact, we receive caller questions from across America and around the world. So let's take a question now, this time from an Invest Talk listener in Denmark. 
Hello, Steve and Justin. This is uh, Yannick from Denmark. I have a question about a stock called ArcelorMittal. Take a simple MG. It is very low priced now. I think it has a PE ratio of 1.4. Extremely good value, positive cash flow, etc. I was thinking this seems too good to be true. And it's a steel producer, so it's an industrial company. should be really good in these times. I should like to hear your opinion. Many thanks. Bye. All right. This is ArcelorMittal, and this is a company out of Luxembourg. And this is a great example of how you cannot look at any data point on a stock in and of itself. You always have to look at the longer term trends and uh, future expectations of earnings, etc. And this is the perfect example of a business that is volatile, very cyclical, and it is a price taker. Now what they do is they make semi-finished and finished steel. They're a steel producer, $28 billion market cap. And if you look back in the history of earnings, 2015, they lost 54 cents. Then they made, uh, that climbed up to $6 in earnings in 2018. 2019 pre-pandemic made only 30 cents, lost 77 cents in 2020, and then guess what? 2021 made $13.50, supposed to make $12.80 this year, but down to $5.53 next year, down 57%. So you can see these wild, wild swings in earnings over the years, and their profit margins skyrocket, and then they come back down to earth. So don't just look at the one year and say, oh, the P ratio is is X. And oftentimes that P ratio is kind of an anomaly. Um, now, if you look at things like uh, price to free cash flow, which would be a better measure of how good the, the company is doing, it's still pretty low, right around three. So I would say it is relatively cheap, but based on forward looking earnings of $5, talking about a five multiple, okay? And so I do think, once again, it is cheap. Uh, is it historically cheap? Let's see. It's been slightly cheaper in the past, it looks like, based on price to free cash flow. Uh, they do have, let me look at their debt. Yeah, decent amount of debt, but not certainly not too much. Um, you know, I'm going to give this one overall thumbs up. Uh, I'd rather them have exposure to... Uh, the U.S. market, which I think there's uh, regulation coming down the pipe for cleaner production of steel, which uh, I'm not sure on ArcelorMittal whether they have that uh, ability. I know there's some global regulations being passed on that front. Um, but overall, I I think it is cheap enough. But understand that it's not uber cheap. It's not this generational cheap figure. Um, like it seems like if you're just looking at the current earnings, one, you know, uh, P ratio right around two. Uh, that's more of a, a one-time uh, event. So cheap, but not quite as cheap as you are making out to be. Thanks for the call. Now, there are no, there's no way around it. As investors, you've got to be prepared to deal with the reality of markets. And the inescapable reality is that the investment environment has changed and will always change. And so you need to be cognizant of how political winds uh, are affecting economic outcomes for the economy as a whole in different countries and around the world, as well as different sectors, regulation, 
supply constraints, um, you know, economic trends that uh, highlight different uh, different problems and, and opportunities within particular sectors, etc. And in these times, especially, there is more bifurcation of how different sectors are benefiting or hurting from the inflationary environment that we're we're now in with deglobalization, with ESG, uh, with demographic shifts that are causing problems in places like China, for example. And so I think it's worth taking a minute to make you aware of some of the benefits of working with myself and CPs at our company KPP Financial, based in Irvine, California. And if you need help understanding whether your portfolio is set up properly, set up to succeed in this new regime, in this new world, post-COVID, deglobalization, etc., I encourage you to reach out to myself or Steve at our, comp at our uh, website, investtalk.com, for a free portfolio review assessment via telephone or go-to-meeting, or you can give our office a call at 800 557 5461. We'd love to help you in any way. Now, the sooner you contact us, the sooner we can help you get your portfolio and your strategy and your plan optimized for today's world. So let's grab another caller question now from 888-99-CHART. Hi, this is Lily from California. I just have a question about the stock M-U-L-N, Mullen Automotive. Just kind of wanted to hear some feedback on it. It's about 80 cents right now. And I about 60% of my portfolio. So just any thoughts or comments on it? Kind of a new stock and just a little worried about it right now. But thank you and I appreciate your program. All right, looking at Moolin Automotive. I haven't heard of this. I think you said it was 60% of your portfolio. That's the first problem there. Uh, never have one company as 60% of your portfolio. Shouldn't probably get more than 10% of your portfolio uh, on the very extreme side. So you definitely want to find ways to trim this uh, position. Now, the good thing for you, it is up, what, 6% today? 7? 9% today, excuse me. But that's up seven cents to from eighty to eighty-seven cents per share, and the issue for this stock. Let's see what they do here. They manufacture electric vehicles and energy solutions. Oh, okay, so it's a story stock. Got it. Um, yeah, this is a company that doesn't make any money. Uh, it's never really made any money. Uh, it's supposed to make money this year, but I highly doubt it. And this is not a company you want to own. You want to be selling this as soon as possible because. They don't have any revenue. <laughs> this is a complete story stock. These are the companies you definitely want to stay away with, stay away from, and you absolutely, absolutely want to not make this sixty percent of your portfolio. So you are very, very. You should be worried. Uh, you should be very, very worried, and you should be getting out ASAP. This is Invest Talk. I'm Justin Klein. We have one goal here: is to help you achieve your own version of financial freedom. And our work continues after this final break. So if you're going to call, you need to do that right now at eight 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 ninety nine chart. You are listening to Invest Talk. Every Friday on the program and the podcast, Steve Peasley shares highlights from the newest edition of the KPP Premium Newsletter. Listen Fridays to Invest Talk. And now, Steve and Justin welcome your calls and questions. 888 99 Chart. Uh, hi there. I have a question uh, regarding DAFs, donor-advised funds. 
I've worked hard all my life. I've accumulated uh, a sufficient cash for retirement, and I'd like to think about uh, charitable contributions. And one of those brought to my attention was the DAF. I think Fidelity and Schwab Vanguard have a program to allow that, but wonder if you had any thoughts, advice, suggestions on uh, on utilizing that for charitable gifting. Thanks so much, and I'll listen for your answers. All right, talking about charitable uh, donor advised funds, excuse me. And yeah, there are different brokers that will support donor advised funds and Schwab Fidelity uh, couple. Uh, the positives are you get immediate write-offs. Um, now you have to talk to your CPA on how that would work and what makes sense. Um, but these are uh, ways to save on taxes now and, uh, and kind of earmark the money for a particular charity uh, later in life. And you can kind of grant money over time and uh, from these funds. Now, the issue or the, the biggest drawback, I guess, is limited investment options. So you can't just go buy any particular stock. Usually each broker has their set of, of funds that are available for you to invest in. And you may like those, you may not like those. Um, but certainly a decent option if you are looking to uh, save money now. But I would probably talk to your CPA first to see what makes sense. Is it a large amount at once? Is it you know, a certain amount over time, uh, et cetera? And having something like that uh, is not a bad idea if you're trying to be a giver uh, over the long term and you're okay with limited investment choices. Right? Now, lastly, let's talk a little bit about apartment rate rents. And after record increases in rents over the past year or so, growth is starting to cool off, which is going to help housing affordability and will feed into overall inflation. Now, nationally, the average apartment rent rose 9.4% in the second quarter year over year. Now, that's down from 11% increase in the previous two quarters, so fourth quarter and first quarter of this year. Now, analysts are projecting that rent growth will continue to slow in the next few months and finish the year about 6.2% higher and expected another 4.9% increase next year. But where has rent started to fall the most or rental market weakened the most? And it's mainly in the areas that have the fastest growing rent increases. See how these things mean revert? You always revert to uh, the mean, revert to what the fundamentals support. Every Asset class always does that. And that's why you that's why we focus so much on fundamentals here. It's because trends over short terms can uh, be anomalous. They can uh, they can be pushed for various different reasons, but ultimately it comes down to incomes and housing prices uh, revert to incomes over time. Same with rents, because what pays for mortgages, pays for rent, that is incomes. And so when you see the increase in prices of real estate and, and rents go above uh, incomes for an extended period of time, you know that it's unsustainable. And that's what happened in 04, 05, 06. That's why we were calling that here, that you know the housing market was a bubble back then, because we saw the underlying fundamentals. You can't have housing prices go up 20% and incomes go up 2 or 3%. And that's what was happening year after year in the early aughts. And so 
right now, rental prices in places like Phoenix, Las Vegas, Tampa uh, are, are all under pressure. In Phoenix, asking rents grew 10% in the second quarter compared to a year earlier, but that's down from an 18% increase in the first quarter and a 21% increase in the fourth quarter. So from 21 all the way down to 10 in just a couple of quarters. Palm Beach, Florida, that's actually below their high point in 2021. So rents there are actually falling. And U.S. apartment vacancy is, in, is actually increased for the first time in 14 months from 3.5 to 3.7. And the total number of leased apartments increased by 72,000. That's compared to 266,000 in the second quarter of last year. And the reason why total number of leased apartments uh, growth is, is going down because rental growth is exceeded in incomes. And when that happens, it's harder and harder to pay rent. And what do you do? you now go live with a roommate, right? Or if you're in a, in a relationship, maybe it pushes you even more to live together into one household. Um, and so those things are, are, are often a catalyst for that when your incomes do not keep up with rent. And that's what you're seeing now. And that's why the rental market is beginning to weaken along with housing market. Now, I'm Justin Klein. This completes another Invest Talk program. Steve Peasley and I thank you for listening. We encourage you to tell your friends and family about our free podcast downloads, which you can find anytime at iTunes, Spotify, Google Play. And guess what? This week, we will break the 44 million mark. So thanks to, thanks to you. Independent thinking, shared success. This is Invest Talk. Good night. Invest Talk is a trademark of KPP Financial. Because of the nature of the interactive dialogue inherent in the format of this program, it's important for the listener to understand that not all comments made will apply to them. Specifically, nothing said shall be taken to be investment advice, or shall statements on this program be considered an offer to buy or sell security. Because such advice is rendered solely on an individual basis, and at times will require that the investor review a prospectus before investing. InvestTalk is a copyrighted program of Klein, Pavlis, and Peasley Financial. 